0: Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, if you turn there once again. In each of the previous messages that I've taught on the New Testament church, I've emphasized that the church is God's program for New Testament Christians. It's impossible for Christians to ignore the church without ignoring clear foundational teachings from the Word of God. Now, we learned in the last message that one of the church's primary ministries is that of teaching, uh, of training new converts in the faith. Jesus said that he would build his church, and part of the way that the church is built by plunging the, the believer deeper into the faith so that he is rooted and grounded in the faith so that he knows what he believes and is able to defend what he believes. And The church is where we get this instruction. Now, imagine for a moment if you lived in the Old Testament times, how would you worship God? How would you have a relationship with God? Well, if you ignored Israel and the temple, if you ignored the sacrifices, then you would ignore God's plan for working with His people. You wouldn't be able to worship God without that plan. In fact, God would not let you come to Him in worship if you reject the plan that He gave for worship. And the same is true in the New Testament age, as God worked in the Old Testament through, the, through Israel and the temple. Today, God works through the New Testament church. Old Testament Israel couldn't ignore the temple and neither can New Testament Christians ignore the church. The New Testament gives us a plan, and that plan to worship Christ and to glorify Christ involves your participation rather in the local church that is built upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles. So this is the place where we go to properly worship God. Now today in our study of the church, I am pleased to speak to you about baptism I I don't remember, well, I do remember, actually, because I have the records, how long was the last time that I took an entire message to speak on baptism? That's been about eight years ago now, and it's a topic that I like to talk about, even though we don't talk about it a great deal. It's a very important topic. Um, It's important for the church, so I I am pleased to talk to you about it because of its importance to, importance to, to Baptist people and Christians in general. Now, on the, the sign out in front of our church, prominently displayed there is our name, which is the Berean Baptist Church. And that name, Baptist, comes from baptism. In fact, the way that we practice baptism caused our enemies to call us Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers, and we were called that because we rejected infant baptism that was done by Roman Catholics and Protestants. And we insisted upon the baptism of believers by immersion. And because of that, anyone who is baptized as an infant and then later converted to Christ, our people required them to receive true New Testament baptism before they could enter into the membership of our churches. So we, we actually dispute the name Anabaptist because we do not rebaptize. We give scriptural baptism according to one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And therefore, we think just the name Baptist fits us very well. Well, over the next few hundred years of church history, after this term Anabaptist came into use, the Anna was dropped. And now in these modern times, since about the the, uh, 17th century or so, we are known simply as Baptist. And we are content to accept that name because it defines who we are and what we believe. And so in most of our churches, a baptistry, such as the one that you see over here, is very prominently displayed in auditoriums. And we have that baptistry because baptism is vitally important to believers. Now, today I'd like to talk to you about that. I want to speak to you about the importance of baptism. And though I think just about everyone in here... Uh, understands baptism in the way that I want to talk to you about it now. Uh, I'm not, probably not going to reveal any new information, but it's good for us to be reminded of this, and just in case somebody asks, what do you believe about it? What is baptism, and what do Baptists think about that? Well, I'm going to give you a, an entire outline here that'll help you to answer that question. So we're going to talk about the proper practice of baptism, and I'm pleased to discuss this subject because this is one of the golden threads of, of, of doctrinal uh, of the doctrinal fabric of this church. To be a Baptist church, we must believe in baptism. So I want to call your attention to the sixth chapter of Romans, in which Paul gives in one place just a wealth of information regarding the scriptural purpose, the method, and subjects of baptism. And it is important for us to... Look into the New Testament and see what it says about baptism baptism because we do know it commands us to be baptized and commands us to baptize others. Christ was baptized to indicate his death and resurrection. He said that he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. The apostles were all baptized as all Christian converts were. 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost. Thousands more were baptized in the first uh, few chapters of the book of Acts. William MacDonald, who's an able Bible commentator, wrote, The New Testament never contemplates the abnormal situation of an unbaptized believer. It assumes that those who are converted submit to baptism right away. Thus our Lord could speak of faith and baptism in the same breath. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16:16. 16, 16. Though baptism is not a requirement for salvation, it should be the invariable public sign of it. I spoke a little bit about this last week, and I had intended to mention it again, but just as I read this quote, I, it, it just comes to my mind. MacDonald says, the New Testament never contemplates the abnormal situation of an unbaptized believer. It assumes that those who are converted submit to baptism right away. Just uh, within the last week or so, I received uh, a letter from a couple of young men who are missionaries in, uh, to one of the countries in Africa. I don't remember which, which country that it was. But they, were, uh, they wrote their letter asking for support. And to back up their their uh, claim that they need support and they were doing a great work, they started to talk about how many people had been converted under their ministry in Africa. And those numbers ran up into the thousands. But then it reported the numbers of people that were baptized. And I, I think that I've told you before, I'm very skeptical of counting people, professions of faith for people who refuse to be baptized, won't be baptized. So that, that strikes a chord with me what McDonald has to say here. The New Testament doesn't know anything about unbaptized believers, and it expects that new converts will be baptized right away. Well, we can see here then in our text of, of Romans chapter 6 that Paul freely wrote about baptism and expected that all the believers that he wrote to in Rome had experienced it. So we look here in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? that we henceforth should not serve sin. My purpose in this message today is to give you the Baptist view of the doctrine of baptism. And when I say the Baptist view, I mean the correct Bible view. This is the historical teaching of people today that are called Baptists, but we can trace these scriptural interpretations... In every century back to the very first church. We don't have any agenda here to build any denominational opinions. We want the Bible's teachings, not opinions, because the Bible's teaching is the infallible word of God. This is not somebody's opinion. So what does the Bible teach about baptism? I want to take just a moment to read from our church statement of faith where we have uh, just a very good synopsis of the doctrine of baptism. In our statement of faith, it says that we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin And resurrection to a new life, that it is prerequisite to the privileges of church relation and to the Lord's Supper. Now, what I want to do is to break this this definition down and use this as an outline for our teaching of baptism today. But before I begin, I want you to notice how closely that definition parallels the symbolism of baptism that is found here in Romans chapter 6. Now, our statement says, baptism shows in a solemn and beautiful emblem, remember these words like emblem, our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. Now, we compare that to verse number 4 in Romans chapter 6. It says, therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as, that's important, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So here we have a description of the symbolism of baptism. What does that stand for? What does it stand for? It stands for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we want to hold on to that because we're going to return to that before we finish the message today. Now, regarding our article... Uh, In the Statement of Faith on Baptism, there are four areas that are defined here as markers for scriptural baptism. The first of these, the first marker that we have that uh, that is required for us to have a scriptural baptism is that baptism requires a scriptural subject. The first phrase of the statement reads, "...we believe Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer." And so the statement qualifies who can be considered as a candidate for baptism. The person to be baptized must be a believer. Now, if I were to describe the bloodiest battleground of the Christian faith, it would be this opening statement. And I don't mean bloody in a figurative sense. I mean this literally. More Baptist people have lost their lives in defense of this doctrine than of all the things that we believed and taught down through the centuries. In church history, there was terrible persecution of our forefathers because of this doctrine. And many times the ability to survive, even stay alive, depended on what a person would say about their understanding of baptism. We were branded as heretics by Roman Catholics and Protestant churches who relentlessly killed Baptist people chased them down, killed them over this doctrine of baptism. A believer's baptism, known theologically as credo-baptism. And if you wonder, well, credo-baptism, what does that mean? Well, credo simply means, I believe. And it's talking about, I believe, uh, baptism, uh, a believer's baptism. And this meant that that we could not accept baptism as the way that people are saved. It caused us also to reject baptism as a sacrament, which means that we don't believe that baptism is a way that God conveys grace upon the person who is being baptized. Now, there's a serious error in this that's known as the error of baptismal regeneration, which means that a person is born again, that he is regenerated by going down into the water to be baptized. Well, as Baptists, we reject that. We reject that baptism washes away original sin. We reject, in fact, that any sin is washed away in baptism. Now, this, this happens to be one of the earliest departures from the gospel of grace, baptismal regeneration, and it wasn't long before the experience of baptism was substituted for the symbolism of baptism, and then baptism became salvation itself. Baptism became the real thing instead of a a picture of what happens when a person trusts Christ as Savior. When I baptize new converts, they're, well, usually very, very happy. They're happy. It's a joyous occasion to be baptized. And many times, baptism is accompanied with strong emotions. But when the emotion of the event takes over the meaning of the event, then we have a problem. And this is what happened in the case of baptismal regeneration, that is, people believing that you were actually born again in the water. And so baptism then is switched from believers to unbelievers, and the act itself is proposed as a means of salvation. And if a person is baptized with that understanding, their baptism is invalid, and it is not Christian baptism. It must be rejected. And that's what got so many of our Baptist forefathers in trouble. They would not accept the baptism of unregenerate people. They would not re, uh, uh, accept the baptism of unbelievers, and nor would they submit to people that practiced it. So our forefathers then would re-baptize, and, and, and understand that I'm using that term very loosely, and I'm using it for convenience only, but we re-baptize or correctly baptize all those who came to us which means that we rejected Roman Catholic baptisms and those of Protestant churches. Most of the latter rejected because they're performed on in- infants that are incapable of believing, and thus they are not proper subjects for baptism. So in all the instances of baptism that we find in the New Testament, the baptisms were those of those who made conscious, deliberate decision about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, since that's true, then it follows that saving faith is a prerequisite for for baptism. Before you can be baptized, you must have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the examples of that in Scripture are so numerous that we don't have time to go through them all. It'd be much easier if I just said, well, if you don't believe that, then show me an example, one example in all the Scriptures where you had someone baptized who was not a believer and they got baptized to become a believer. Well, we don't have examples of that. But we do have some classic examples that show the proper order, faith first and then baptism. Now, I want you to understand that that is a critical issue because it affects the cardinal doctrine of justification. And let me give you just a couple of examples that we have in Scripture. said there are many of these, but the first of them is perhaps the clearest of all on this issue. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 8, this is the example of the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch was in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, And he didn't understand what he was reading. So Philip the evangelist uh, got into his chariot and he began to explain the scriptures. This is Acts 8, beginning in verse number 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. Now this is just a remarkable thing. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. He began with that scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, I think that is an interesting question, because it's obvious that somewhere in this conversation between Philip and the eunuch, they had discussed baptism. Maybe, maybe the eunuch had heard about it in some other place, but I think that they likely discussed baptism somewhere in this, in this conversation which kind of goes against what you hear many people teach on this, that say, well, what you need to do is deal with the person about their salvation. Don't even talk to them about baptism at all. Don't talk about obedience to baptism. Don't put that into the conversation. I think it was in this conversation. Verse 37, and Philip said, now he sees the water, and he asks, what hinders me to be baptized? Verse 37, Philip said, if thou believest, if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went both, down both, into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, in verse number 37, in response to the eunuch's question, what hinders me, what stops me from being baptized, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now, there's no question that Philip demanded a response of saving faith before he would baptize this eunuch. If he believed in his heart what he read about Jesus Christ, in Isaiah chapter 53, Philip said, You may be baptized. Now another example is in Acts chapter 10. You want to turn just a couple of pages over there in your Bible. And this is when Peter preached to the Gentile centurion Cornelius. So in Acts chapter 10, verse 43... This is, uh, after all the witnessing has gone on, discussion has gone on. Acts 10.43 says, To him, give all the prophets witness, that is, to Jesus Christ, all the prophets give witness, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, which believed, this is the Jews that were with Peter, which believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water, that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. These are people that believed, they received the Holy Spirit, and thus they're qualified to be baptized. No one receives the Holy Spirit unless they are saved. Now, when we speak of believers, we're talking about those that have been genuinely regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and they are regenerated before their baptism, not in their baptism. So both the Eunuch and Cornelius confess that Jesus is Lord and that faith showed that they were saved and now they're ready to be baptized. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, it says, Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man, speaking by the Spirit of God, calling Jesus a curse, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, you cannot confess Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit is worked in your heart. Now, you can go on to many other scriptures, but you're never going to find an example where faith is absent before baptism, and neither will you find baptism uh, and then a subsequent declaration of faith and then salvation. Now, secondly, we note that the symbolism of baptism demands faith, the symbolism of it. Now, in our text in Romans 6, baptism is shown here to be a representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We understand this, that when we are baptized, we don't literally die on a cross. We are not literally buried in a grave. We don't literally arise from the grave. What we're doing over here in the baptistry is a demonstration of that. It is a picture of that. And in order to do what the picture demonstrates, you must believe what the picture demonstrates. So that person who is baptized, in fact, does believe, he should believe, if it's a proper baptism, in the real death of Jesus Christ, in the real entombment of Jesus Christ, in the real resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the faith, believing this, is the faith that is demanded in baptism. So the symbolism shows then that we've also died to our old sins, our old way of life, and that we rise to walk in the new life of Jesus Christ. Verse number 6 of our text says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We are dead in Christ. We are dead to sin. And there's no one that experiences death to sin and new life in Christ without first having faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Can't picture something that's happened to you if it didn't truly happen. When Jesus spoke of salvation and eternal life in Mark 16:16, 16, 16, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The symbolism of baptism demands faith. Faith, Only those that believe may be baptized, and those that do not believe will be damned. So if Jesus' statement is true, it disqualifies unbelievers from baptism. So from this we can infer what I mentioned just a moment ago is that infants are disqualified. We can't baptize babies. Now never mind that you can't find even one example of infant baptism in the Scripture uh, babies are disqualified because of Jesus' statement about faith and baptism. And yet this issue is one of the most hotly debated points between Baptists and other groups. If faith is required and the symbolism demands faith, infants may not be baptized because infants are incapable of believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But when you have the purpose confused and you're trying to save people by it, if you believe that baptism is the way that you can save people, then the best thing that you could do is to get people saved as early as possible, as quickly as possible. Get that person in the water as soon as possible. And this is one of the reasons that Roman Catholics started baptizing babies. Wash away their original sin in their baptism. Then Protestants also switch the purpose for baptism. Now, they don't exi- most of them don't believe, uh, like Roman Catholics, on this issue, but they believe that baptism is a seal of the new covenant in the same way that circumcision was a seal of the old covenant in the Old Testament. And so they, the Protestant wants to honor and believe that babies should be baptized in order to be sealed to the covenant that's been made with their parents. Only one problem with that. It's not in the Scriptures. We can't find that anywhere in the Bible. The only thing we find in the Bible is that the only scriptural subject for baptism is a believer. Now, secondly, a second requirement, baptism requires a scriptural mode. Now, the mode is the manner. It's the way in which it's done. The first phrase of our statement of faith says, We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. This tells us that proper baptism is by immersion. In Acts chapter 8, it says that both Philip and Eunuch went down into the water. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3.16... There the scripture says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. So obviously he was in the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. In the Gospel of John, we're told that John the Baptist baptized in Enon because there was much water there. Jesus went down into the water, and he came back up out of the water. Again, John went to Enon to baptize because there was much water there. You don't need much water to sprinkle someone. But you do if you're going to immerse them. If you're going to immerse them like we do here, you need much water. And that's the reason if you go over there and look, but you can't see from where you're sitting, I'd imagine there's a big tank underneath that cross. And it holds a lot of water. Enough to put you all the way under the water to submerge you completely, to immerse you in that water. The water is deep. One of the interesting locations that we visited in Israel was a, a place called Yardenet on the banks of the Jordan River. This is near to where the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee. Thousands of people visit this place to experience baptism in the Jordan River. Now, the water there is deep. And there is plenty of water for baptisms. I have a picture, if we can show that, that shows people in, in deep water that are ready to be immersed. There we go. Um, I don't think that there is any special significance to being baptized in the Jordan. And people will go there for their emotional responses, the emotional aspect. They go to have what they call their spiritual experience. And quite frankly, that's what part of what caused trouble over baptism in the first place, then it's also wrong for someone who has been baptized to go and have a second baptism in the Jordan. Uh, That's what one of my friends did a few years ago, and I remember when he returned, his eyes got this big when he was telling me about this experience that he had of being baptized in the Jordan River. Well, we went there, we saw this going on, and I was glad that our tour director was a Uh, a good Bible teacher, and he recognized there is no significance to being baptized, having a second baptism in the Jordan River, so he didn't encourage anybody in our group to be baptized. But we can see here that what they're doing is they go into the water to be completely immersed. Now, what I noticed about this as we were watching all of these people, I didn't say, well, you know, there's some people who don't believe in being immersed, and they're the people that are standing up on the bank. And there's a water guy with a water hose over there, and he's spraying all them down. You don't see that there. Now, all the people are in the water to be immersed. Now, why do you think then that, that people, when there are so many people that believe in sprinkling for baptism, that they would go to this place to be immersed? Why would they do that? Well, I think they would go there because they recognize this is the way they did it in the New Testament, and so what they desire is to have a New Testament experience. All Christians were baptized by immersion. Even Luther and Calvin agreed that the original mode was immersion. I mean, that these, those were two men that practiced infant baptism and practiced sprinkling, but they did believe and did know that the Greek word meant immersion. And there's not much argument over that. When you, when you talk to people, they do know this, that immersion is the meaning of the Greek word. And for 250 years after Christ, baptisms were by immersion. And all the way up to the 17th century, it was more common to find immersion than sprinkling. And even babies were immersed. But for convenience, things were changed. They began to, well, baptize the sick. How are you going to get the sick into the water? You, well, you can't immerse them, they thought. So you can't physically get to the water. So let's just sprinkle some water on them. And eventually that convenience won out. And now people, instead of arguing how to be baptized, they'll just say, well, it really doesn't matter how you do it. Just do it some way. Just get it done. Then another interesting thing is that um, the King James translators used a transliterated form of the Greek word rather than directly translating it as immersion. If they had uh, translated instead of transliterating, then we would read in our Bibles today about the Ethiopian eunuch, and there we would read what happened to him. He said, what doth hinder me from being immersed? And then we would look in Matthew 28, and we would read there the Great Commission, and it would say, go ye therefore and teach all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. And if they had done that, that would have cleared up a lot of confusion. But in defense of the King James translators... There's nothing wrong with the transliteration. They didn't invent the word. It was already in use before they came along and uh, people understood what they were talking about when they said baptism instead of immersion. But a literal translation put into plain English words would be immerse. So why then do some people sprinkle a little bit of water on a person and call it baptism or they pour a cup of water on their head Well, most of them are like the late J. Vernon McGee, who said, it doesn't matter. The way that you do it doesn't matter. And most of them have changed the meaning of baptism anyway. They aren't even trying to picture what Romans 6 describes. Whether convenience or change of meaning, we would have to say it's wrong not to do what the Bible requires. So what does the scriptural mode require? Well, we have to look at the picture. Baptism pictures burial and resurrection. So changing the mode to something else would be a serious misrepresentation of what we're trying to show. Baptism pictures the gospel. Paul said the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now again, our text says in Romans 6, 4, "...therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead..." By the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I don't think that it could be much clearer. It's baptism into death. And then it says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead. Similarly, Colossians 2 verse 12 says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him From the dead. Well, if baptism pictures a burial, how could you do that by sprinkling or pouring a little water on someone? You don't bury dead bodies by putting a little bit of dirt on them. Now, you go to the cemetery, you don't see arms and legs sticking up out of the ground. None of us would be happy. You know, when I was in Kentucky a couple months ago, I went to the grave of my mom. I went to see my dad's grave. They're buried there together. My brother-in-law, who recently died in in early February. And um, I noticed I didn't see any of the body. The body was all the way underground. The body's in the ground. We would be upset if we went to the cemetery and found out that our loved ones had only their head buried. There are times that I baptize people that are larger than me. This has happened through the years. People that are bigger than I am, and sometimes it's hard to get them all the way under the water. There are a couple that I tried sitting on, and that that didn't work really well, and then you have those that are afraid I'm not going to bring them back up, so they grab the glass and you know you just have to pry them away from it and try to try to get them under the water. But I honestly do try to get them all the way under the water because I believe in the symbolism. I don't want to leave part of the body unburied. So I try to get them down, and they just have to trust me. I'll be able to get them back up. So so we do that. We do that. We don't leave dead bodies sticking out of the ground. And this is what they did with Jesus. They put him in the, put him in the tomb. He was completely engulfed in the heart of the earth, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. Jesus is three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if that is what baptism pictures then why do people change it to something else? Now, it's not as if they don't have the information that I've just told you. I mean, this is not this is not new information. This has been around for centuries, what all of this means. So, because they know what we think about it, and what this scripture says about what baptism means, they know in order to make a, a baptism fit what they're doing, they have to change the meaning of baptism. Again, you can't show a burial by sprinkling, so they will take this passage in Romans chapter 6 and they will make it here a mystical, spiritual baptism, not baptism in water. That is not what the passage is teaching. Scriptural baptism requires the right subject and the right mode. Now, thirdly, baptism requires scriptural authority. If people don't err on the mode of baptism, most often they err here on the issue of authority. Who has the authority to baptize? Well, right up front, God has not given everybody the authority to baptize. If we have a scriptural baptism, we must receive it from the proper authority. So we need to take a look then at the biblical chain of authority on baptism that we find in the scriptures. First, I would say that baptism is by the Trinitarian formula. When I say Trinitarian, I mean that baptism is under the authority, first of all, baptism is under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this in The commission of Matthew 28, "...go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of..." And that simply means under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So the first authority for baptism is God. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees about authority, he asked them, "...the baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men?" Now, when he said of heaven, he meant, did it come from God or did men begin baptism? Well, of course, John's baptism came from heaven. Baptism's not the invention of man. It came directly from the authority of God. God is the originator. God's the one who gave the command. God said, do it, and so we do it. Then next in this chain of authority is that God authorized the first baptizer. And who was the first baptizer? Well, that was John the Baptist. He was designated as the Baptist because he baptized. He is the one who baptizes. And John received that authority directly from God. Now, it's obvious God does not baptize. So he gave his authority to his authorized representative. He appointed an administrator. And this administrator was important enough that Jesus walked 60 miles to get his baptism from the proper administrator, who was John the Baptist. Then we see in the scripture that the issue of authority for baptism was important to Paul. In Acts chapter 19, he met some disciples that came from Ephesus, and he said, did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? And they said, no. And he said, then unto what then were you baptized? Now they knew it, Paul knew it, it's important to get the authority right And they said, well, we were baptized unto John. But Paul recognized there's something wrong here. Something is wrong with this. They didn't get baptism directly for John, or else they would have known that they were getting New Testament baptism because John preached that Jesus the Messiah had come. And it's belief in Jesus the Messiah who has come, which qualifies you to be baptized. So the administrator of this was very important. But we read the scriptures here and we recognize, of course, that John the Baptist is dead. John doesn't baptize people today. In fact, he was already dead when Paul asked this question in Acts chapter 19. So what do we do about baptism without John? Who has the authority? Well, pay attention here. Thirdly, God authorized the church to baptize. Now, let me show you how the church mechanically received this authority. First, Jesus and the apostles were all baptized by John. In Acts chapter 1, when they were choosing uh, a, a new apostle to replace Judas, I want you to notice the qualifications for this new apostle. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John... Under the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now that simply means that, that that apostle that they would choose had to have been baptized by John the Baptist, the one who had the authority. All of the apostles had John's baptism. In John chapter 4, Jesus had apparently given the apostles authority to baptize. John 4 verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. So now we find the disciples baptizing in the presence of Jesus who must have granted them that authority. So what did Jesus do with these men that he gave authority? Well, these are the men that made up the first church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, and God has set some in the church, who? First, apostles. So that tells us the apostles were in the church. They had the authority to baptize. Well, now we're 2,000 years removed from the apostles. So how does that authority get to us? Well, it comes through the succession of churches that are promised to be here until Christ returns. Isn't this what Jesus said? The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He'll be with us to the end of the age, etc., etc. These churches of the Lord Jesus Christ will always be here. And it's through the succession of churches that this baptism continues down to us today. So this is what the Great Commission does. It gives us the authority to preach the gospel. It gives us the authority to make disciples. And it gives us the authority to baptize these disciples. At the end of the commission in Matthew 28 and the 20th verse, Jesus said, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, we know that Jesus could not be speaking to these apostles in the room alone or present there alone because they couldn't reach the end of the world. They wouldn't be there at the end of the world at the end of the age, so we have to conclude that the commission that's given to these apostles is given to them as they are the church. So the church has the commission because the church is the only thing that's been promised to survive until Jesus comes again. Matthew sixteen eighteen. So today, we receive the authority to baptize through the commission. By our connection to a succession of churches since Christ and having the same doctrines that we find in the New Testament, we are authorized to baptize. And only true New Testament churches have this authority. Well, this points out something else especially important. What about a church that does not agree with New Testament doctrine? A church with authority is only a New Testament church, if it is the same in faith and order as the one that Jesus started. So certainly we would have to say that a church that changed the mode of baptism to something other than immersion, that couldn't be, they couldn't be authorized to baptize. Couldn't do that. That, that should be a point without dispute, and there are churches that change New Testament doctrine. Thus, they can't be the church that Jesus founded and authorized. I remember we had a, a lady who visited our church years ago. She wanted to become a member of Berean. She'd been baptized in a denominational church that was not of like faith and order. She was saved, and I have no doubt that she was. Uh, she liked our church. She came every Sunday, she agreed with our doctrine, so she wanted to become a member of the church. She came into my office to talk about membership, and I asked her about her baptism. Well, she began to relate to me her emotional baptism, and she was hanging on to that because she was baptized in a creek or in a lake or something like that, and she was just telling me how meaningful and how special this baptism was to her. But the problem is that, or was that the group that baptized her had no authority to baptize. They didn't agree with the New Testament. We didn't agree with them. I would never have invited one of their preachers to come and preach in this pulpit. And I wouldn't because their doctrine was wrong. We couldn't respect the authority of her baptism. And so I said, to become a member here, you're going to have to baptize under the proper authority. I mean, the authority that she had, she might as well have been baptized by the Safeway store manager. It had been just as good if she'd done that. False churches cannot baptize. But we do know this, don't we? There are some true believers in false churches. They're saved, but their baptism is not valid. So, I told her that. She, She just couldn't do it. She didn't want to give up this unscriptural baptism that she was holding on to because she had this strong, emotional, built-in attachment to it. So in essence, her personal feelings trumped the Word of God. The problem here is that individuals do not determine whether their baptism is right. An emotional attachment to baptism does not make it right. The Word of God is what determines the validity. And the church upholds the truth of the Word of God. So if we take wrong baptisms, then we might as well say that doctrine doesn't matter. You just be what you like, do what you like, we'll accept that. We can't do it. Because we must go by the Word of God. If we don't, then we have an unscriptural, or we don't have a scriptural church. Baptism is a church ordinance. And this is why we discuss it under the doctrine of the church. Our statement of faith on scripture reads this way. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's our history. We were called Anabaptist because we took into membership only those baptized with real authority. All others had to receive correct baptism. Now, finally, number four, I hurry on. Baptism requires a scriptural design. The scriptural design means that it is done for the right reason. I've already touched on this, but uh, listen to the fourth clause of the statement of faith. This is the design of baptism. This is what it does. To show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to new life. What about the design of baptism? I can state it to you first negatively. Baptism does not save. Baptism is not for the purpose of regenerating people. The new birth does not take place in baptism we realize that there are a few scriptures that are twisted against the overwhelming evidence of the New Testament. But there is one place that we can go where this question is asked point blank, what must I do to be saved? That question is asked and answered in Acts 16, verses 29 to 31. The man that asked it was the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas were in his jail. Acts sixteen twenty nine. Then he called, this is the jailer. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. There is no baptism in that answer. We read a moment ago about Cornelius. He received the Holy Spirit before he was baptized and nobody calls Jesus Lord without the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was anointed with oil, he told the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. John 3.16, John 3.36, there is no baptism. The thief on the cross, in his dying moments trusted Jesus for salvation. Jesus turned to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. He did not have baptism. He had no opportunity for baptism. And his salvation was not tied to baptism. His salvation was that he had faith in Christ. And faith in Christ was all he needed to be justified. Next, baptism is a good work. The design of baptism is a good to be a good work. It's an act of obedience. Now, what does the Bible say, then, about keeping laws and commandments and about doing good works for salvation? Romans 4, 5 and 6, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described it, the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 through 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Galatians two sixteen. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I don't think Paul could explain that any better than that. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. When I was a, a, a young man, a very young man, I remember... My dad often had debates with Church of Christ preachers. Church of Christ believes that you contact the blood of Jesus Christ in the water. You go into the water, you get baptized, you go, in a, you go in a sinner, you come up saved just by getting into the water. They attach faith to it in some ways, but essentially the water is what activates all of this and makes it all happen. The water is, I guess you'd say, the catalyst for salvation. So I remember my dad argued this with another preacher. He believed that baptism saves, saved. So he asked this man a question. He said, is baptism a good work? And the man knew that the question caught him on the horns of a dilemma. If he said baptism is a good work, then he knew by the scriptures that I've just read you, good works don't save. If he said baptism is not a good work, then he has another problem. If it's not a good work, is it a bad work? Then how could a bad work save you? So either answer caught him in a dilemma. Good works don't save, and baptism is a good work. Thirdly, baptism is not a sacrament. Baptism is not a way to obtain grace. That would confuse grace and works. Baptism is a good work. It's a command for us to obey, to obey. It's an act that we perform. It's not an inward grace that's worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It's an outward act that we do. And there are no rituals that we do that help us obtain salvation. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, "For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ." First, Paul says, we are children of God by faith. Children of God by faith. Then he says, we have put on Christ in baptism. Well, how how is that? What does that mean? Well, he means just as a soldier puts on a uniform, that the uniform does not make him a soldier, but he puts on the uniform to be identified as a soldier. And this is what we teach about baptism. Baptism is our public identification with Jesus Christ. So likewise, we put on Christ in baptism to show others that we are identified with Christ. That's the public declaration, and thus we can say this is what baptism is designed for. It demonstrates our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for a justification. It demonstrates our sanctification in that we have died to our old way of life, and we rise to be a new creation in Christ. Then fourthly, baptism is the doorway into the church. It's the designated entrance into the church. No one can become a member of the Lord's church without baptism. Acts 2.41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached, 3,000 were baptized and added to them. That is, they were added to the church. You see how important New Testament baptism is? You can't make true new testament churches without baptism you destroy baptism and the church is destroyed why do you think satan has tried so hard through these centuries persecuting baptist people and trying to destroy the meaning of baptism perverting it into a way of salvation and all those things because you destroy baptism you destroy the church So it's the reason that we insist upon proper baptism. We have to guard that to make sure that we have a scriptural subject, we have the scriptural mode, the way that we do it, the scriptural authority, and we do it with a scriptural design. All of this because the Lord's church is at stake. The Lord preserved His church down through the centuries since He was here, and true churches have kept the ordinances. They did them right. And this is why baptism is so important to Baptists. We are still historical Baptists. We don't believe that baptism saves. We baptize people to ensure that we keep a New Testament church that obeys our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, today, obviously, I preached a more technical sermon, doctrinal sermon than I normally preach. I'm, I'm not bashful this morning, but since all of your, most of your good church members, uh, I'm not bashful to give you something to think about, something to chew on a little bit. But it's also important for you to understand that in what I've said today, you have also received the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Along with our teaching on baptism, we have given you the true gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing can be added to the gospel and still be the saving gospel. We must be obedient to Christ in baptism, but that baptism is not required until you are a born-again believer by faith in him. You trust in Christ or if you, if you trust in Christ and you die without baptism and you die without church membership, you will go to heaven. But I'll also say this, that refusal to obey Christ in baptism is not an indication of belief. It's an indication of unbelief. Believers obey. Now my question is, have you been baptized according to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now you know what it means. If anybody here has any mistake about it, I think we've told you what it means. Will you obey what the Bible teaches? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the subject that you've given us. What a beautiful picture that baptism is. Every time that we come into the church and gaze across the auditorium to see the baptistry, We are reminded that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that he arose again for our justification. Oh, we thank you for our people. We thank you for the understanding that you've given us of the word of God. Lord, may we practice what the scriptures say. May we be faithful to what the scriptures say. May we guard your church as you expect us to. And, Lord, we fully believe the promise that the church will be here until you return. And we would be so happy to hear, if it doesn't come in our lifetime, someday that we would hear, hey, the Berean Baptist Church was still standing when Jesus came. Thank you, Lord, for this. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, Please feel free to call us at area code seven zero seven five eight four seven two seven five, or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bbaptist.org.